This morning, we will start a new series on the second letter to the church in Thessalonica. And uh, just by way of quick review, this is a small church. Paul was only with these Greeks and, uh, in, in Thessalonica for about three weeks teaching. Many of them came to faith in Christ, the book of Acts records. Many prominent women in the city come to faith in Christ, according to the scripture. And so this church is comprised of that group of people, but Paul has run out of town. So the church is very young. They've only been together for a short period of time. And uh, Paul's run out of town, running for his life. Writes the first letter, which we just went through for a number of weeks. And then this second letter comes within months. Most scholarship agrees it's within the same year that the second letter came. Why did he write it? Because he gets news that there's some disinformation going around about Christ's return. What's being said is he's already returned. And so here they are being told of these young Christians that know hardly anything. Christ has already returned. And here they are under the crushing regime of Rome. They're very confused. And it actually started to manifest this attitude of futility in the church. And a lot of them become idle and a lot of them stop working. And a lot of them are like, well, what's the point? And why do what? They're just very confused. And it's a spiral. And Paul responds by writing a second letter, literally within months of the first letter. And so this morning we're going to pick this up in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to always thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your steadfastness and your faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus... They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from majesty of his power. And when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, that may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by this power. So that by the name of Jesus, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. So if I was to summarize the opening for Paul's second letter, it would be coming in hot. Just like bang, judgment, fire, eternal destruction. Why is he doing this? This morning we're going to explore judgment and deliverance and rest. And if you, if you caught it as you we were reading through there, those three things are inextricably connected in the gospel. Judgment, deliverance, and rest all coming in one. And so on the subject of this 
final judgment, why does he open the letter with it? We're going to ask a handful of questions as we work through this morning. Why does the apostle open the letter with it? What has Jesus said about it? What has Jesus done about it? How do we respond to it? So let's begin with why the apostle opens the letter with it. In verses 3 and 4, he affirms that their love and their faith and their steadfastness, it's rising. And, and it's rising in the midst of pretty suffocating persecution. This letter is around uh, 51 AD. And there's a young Roman ruler who's about to take the seat of power in three years named Nero. don't know if you heard of him. That's where we are in history. So we're a few years away from Christianus Adlianus, Christians to the lions. We're a few years away from that, but things are not good. And this church is being crushed. And Paul uses pretty strong language to say, like, it's amazing the work of the Spirit, your faith, in the midst of what you're going through, because the Greek word for persecution could also be translated hunted. That the, the, the word diagmos in the Greek is like, it was also contextually used for hunting animals. So this isn't like they're going through a rough patch. They're being hunted. And it's terrifying. And so the apostle is, and not only are they being hunted, but the second word, affliction, which I taught on when we were doing the, studying the first letter, the Greek word philipsis is like constant pressure. They would say like you philipsis the grapes to make wine. You just, you just increase the, put, put the pressure on the press and you let it bleed. And as soon as it stops bleeding, you, you click it a couple more times and you put more pressure till it bleeds some more. And then when it stops bleeding, you put some more pressure. I mean, that's how you make wine. And that's what the church is feeling and going through. So the reason the apostle starts with this strong ledger, le, uh, language around judgment is it's actually a word of encouragement for those who are being crushed. And if you've ever, there's very few people in this room, there's a handful, who've been crushed through persecution. Your families have been crushed. We're welcoming some newcomers who've been crushed. Their families have been crushed. And this whole conversation around judgment, it hits different than those of us who live in, have always lived a comfortable life and we've never been persecuted. Many of you may go home and dissect the sermon. What do I feel about it? How do I like it? What didn't I like? What did I appreciate? What didn't I? Ah, let's dissect the way that Paul spoke in this nuance of theology. But that, that just is, is a very comfortable way of thinking about judgment. But it hits different when you're crushed. When I, I had, I've had the privilege of being in a handful of countries, just tremendous privilege. And one of the countries that I was able to be in was South Sudan. And I preached in some churches in South Sudan, and it was terrifying. I'm not going to take a lot of time to talk about it, but like, the things that I experienced and saw were absolutely life-changing. And one of the churches that I went in was almost, it had to have been 90% women. And I asked my guide, I said, where, where are the men? This is so interesting. I'm so curious do they, are, do they not, are they not open to the gospel? Or do they not believe in God? Or are they frustrated or angry or rejected? Or, and so like a North American, I'm trying to figure out why. And my guy just looks at me and he says, they're dead. Like their husbands and their brothers, like they're dead. They've been killed in the street. And on my way to one of these churches, like I had to use the washroom and I don't want to be too graphic, but they're like, you have to go in the middle of the street. You can't go off the street. There's landmines there, so just do it in the street. And I'm in the street, and I look down, and there's a, like a, a huge anti-tank missile, just lay, a bullet, a massive, seven, eight inches long, just laying in the street. When I preached on, in South Sudan, judgment and God, 
God's judgment bringing deliverance and rest, their response was quite different than the response that I'm going to get this morning going through this sermon. Because halfway through, there were women weeping and crying and getting up and dancing. Because the idea that there will be divine judgment on injustice and horrors was for them music to the ears. For the modern North American who's lived a comfortable life, you talk about a God of divine judgment and justice, and we go, ooh, that's gross. But ironically, we wake up every day, we put on the robes of judgment, and we try and vind- you know, exercise judgment and vindication in, in the world on our terms. This idea of a God that, that would bring judgment, that someone could go to this place called hell, what I'm going to get to in a minute, oh, that's disgusting and terrible and archaic and horrifying. No, 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 I don't want that guy. But we want to consign people to hell every day. Our hells. It's not that we're against judgment. We just wanted to define the terms of judgment. It's not that we're against the idea of hell. It's just we want to be the ones that consign people to hell. Set them outside the community forever where they can experience torment for the things that they've done that in our view we've deemed as abhorrent. Right? And in many cases rightly so. But I'm just saying, if this hits different talking this way in modern North America than it does in ancient Thessalonica when the church was being hunted like animals. And Paul's saying, guys, judgment and divine and perfect justice is coming. He's actually lifting a lot of language from Isaiah 61 and 66. And the reason I mention that is because when Paul lifts the language from Isaiah, that's when the people of God were being crushed by Babylon when they went in and destroyed everything and destroyed the temple and the city and brought them away as slaves. And so Paul lifts the language of that destruction and he applies it to these Greeks in Thessalonica who are now being crushed. And he's using that same language as a means of encouraging and lifting the souls of this church that you don't just go through a life of horrors and sorrows and suffering and then in the end it didn't matter. See, the good news, there is a lot of good news in God's just judgment. And it's that deliverance is coming. It's that rest is coming. It's that renewal is coming. We'll get there. So there's a theologian, an Australian theologian named uh, Leon Morris. And he says that when we talk about God's vengeance, we immediately, as moderns, think of it as like we associate it with God being vindictive. But God's vengeance is not vindictive. It's judicial. It's the, the, word, the Greek word for God taking vengeance. It's the same root word as righteousness. It means that what God does is right. It's perfectly right. I mean, isn't that what we want? Don't we want justice in the world that is perfectly right and perfectly straight and perfectly good? That there is deliverance and rest for, for, for those who are on the other side of injustice? Don't we want that? So this is this, this perfect idea of, of jurisprudence that is nothing more and nothing less than perfect judgment. And every time I speak on this subject, and I just did it the other week at the university, like every time I'm on campus with students and, and speaking on, uh, not on this subject necessarily, but just on Christian faith, and then we open it up for Q&A, and I get put on the hot seat, and they fire up Slido, and they ask me 57 questions, and inevitably, the que- one of the questions that always comes up is, like, uh, you know, what, what about, <clears throat> how is God unjust, and what about people who've never heard uh, or never had a chance. Like, it's always framed with this airtight positivism. The chessboard is set up where it's like, we found a loophole, and God is not just, and he's not good, and he's not merciful, and he's not gracious. In fact, he's an ogre. And what about these people who've never had a chance? What I would say is, if you've read the scriptures, it is clear from Genesis to Revelation that this God of perfect uh, judgment and mercy is not hiding 
His fingerprints are in the cosmos. He's coming in fire and cloud. He's parting the sea. It's miracle after miracle that we laugh at and scoff at and reject and turn our nose up and say it's absurd. I mean, he's moved heaven and earth. Not only this, but, it, but it's that he's got a track record of constant theophanies and appearing to people in dreams and visions and moving towards the wayward humanity. This is, this is, a, this is the God who is, comes in Jesus Christ and he wrapped himself in the dirt of his own creation. And then he's healing the sick and he's giving sight to the blind and he's giving, he's giving hearing to the deaf. And he, the lame are walking and the dumb are speaking and then he's casting out demons and he's showing he's got power over creation and nature and the spirit world and he's moving heaven and earth and by the time you get to Acts chapter 17 the explosion of Christianity is unparalleled to anything you've seen in the ancient world not because they believe in a missing body but because the resurrected Christ for 40 days is being seen by hundreds and hundreds of people in Ephesus businesses are shutting down because they are silversmiths and they're making Uh, They're making idols to Athena and they have to close their shops because droves of people are turning to this Jesus Christ who rose from the dead. And then the business people go to the politicians and they say, you got to shut these Christians down. It's bad for business. It's all recorded in the book of Acts. This explosion that Paul is on trial in front of Porcius Festus and King Agrippa. And he says, these things weren't done in a corner. God's not hiding. It's not in a corner. The whole world is upside down. The whole world is upside down for it. He's not hiding. He's not vindictive. He's not wringing his knuckles with some sort of dark pleasure like, ha-ha, it's too bad you didn't know about me. If I'm going to set up an argument, the argument is not going to be, what about the people who've never heard? It's going to be, it seems to us that God has moved heaven and earth and the cosmos from day one. And we laugh in his face, or we excuse him away, or we do a myriad of other things to turn from him. But he's certainly not hiding. The Apostle Paul, while he's on trial, he looks right at Agrippa and he says, you know. You know. Ask Agrippa. You know. And Agrippa says, are you trying to make me a Christian in such a short period of time? It's all written in the book of Acts. So you see, God is not hiding. God's vengeance is not vindictive. Let's keep on moving and and, and consider the good news in all of this. It doesn't seem like judgment could be good news, but it is when it brings deliverance. Think of all the sorrows in the world. Imagine if at the end they just get washed away in a sea of time. Then in the end it's all irrelevant. My sorrow didn't mean anything, the sadness didn't mean anything, the injustice didn't mean anything. So in one ditch you have people who say, well let's talk about God, but let's not talk about this judgment or this hell business because that's not very loving but I don't think that a God that just winks at everything and winks at what's going on in the world is worth worshipping I wouldn't wake up in the morning to worship that God it's a tragic miscarriage of justice so that's nonsense to, 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 to do away with what the scriptures say about final judgment but then on the other ditch you have people who are like man make sure that you punch people in the face with, with hellfire and brimstone because that's holiness for people to know that God's just God's on a hair trigger to cast you into hell that's holiness but then when you look at how God puts his holiness on display in the scriptures. It's cosmic patience. He's giving people decades to turn, centuries to turn. He's constantly moving towards those, his loving creation who hate him and don't want him. And God's not demonstrating his holiness in this way. When When Moses says, show me your holiness, God's response in Exodus is, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. That's the answer to show me your holiness. The book of Ezekiel, 
God says, I take no pleasure on the destruction of the wicked. So we have to keep these things in view when we make no apology for the judgment of God. And Paul is wanting to encourage the church in this because they are being crushed. That's why he's coming in hot. That's why the letter starts this way. And in verse 5, he says that he, his prayers that they would, be considered wor- they would be considered worthy. And it's not like, fingers crossed, I hope you're okay in the end with God. This is a deep sense of conviction. In fact, in the Greek, it's a judicial declaration. He's saying that you would be considered worthy, that you'd be declared worthy, that because of the grace of Jesus Christ, not the life you're living, but a trust transfer in him, that you're saved by grace alone. So all of this beginning to the letter of uh, the second letter to Thessalonica is about infusing hope into this scrappy little church that's being crushed by the empire. So that's why he leads with it. So what does Jesus say about it? What has Jesus said about it? Verse 7, Paul says, when Christ comes in flaming fire and... Jesus spoke more about judgment and hell than everybody else in Scripture combined. Now, whenever you look at this, we're like, what is, what is he saying about it? And what do we take from it? And how are we supposed to grapple with this? It's because Jesus comes as Savior and Lord. He comes as this Prince of Peace and a divine judge. The question is, what kind of a judge is he? Is he an angry ogre or is he scandalously gracious? As I said before, there is this justice and judgment that we, we crave, but we can't fix the world. And so what is this, what is this judgment? What is this punishment? Because it stirs up a lot of emotions. When I read it, some of us are squirming. Some of you are visiting this morning. You're like, what a day to visit church. I mean, some of you may be here today. You're like, you know, I haven't been in church in a long time. I'm going to come and worship. And I'm going to, whoa, what a day to visit. Some of you are like, oh, this is the problem I have with Christianity. I have, I have good news. It is that this judge, this judge Jesus, uh, is the justifier. We don't have a God who sits back with his arms crossed and says, get it right or I'm casting into hell. We have a God who moved heaven and earth and stretched his arms out and said, I will do everything that I can do. To intercept your inevitable trajectory toward hell. Because that's what all of humanity wants. And I'll dissect that right now. By the way, Jesus talks about it. Because uh, when we think of hell, uh, we think of it like lava spiders and ghouls and concentric rings descending into medieval torture chambers like Dante's Inferno and, and medieval paintings. You know, the Sistine Chapel, Final Judgment, Michelangelo's work. Like We have all these images in our mind. But really when Jesus talks about it, it's, it is the utter removal of God's presence. And he calls that hell. The two most common images that Jesus uses are fire and darkness. And, you, and these are metaphors. It doesn't mean hell isn't a reality. It is. But they're metaphors trying to give language to a reality that otherwise you and I couldn't grasp. You can't have fire and darkness at the same time. These are metaphors. Fire disintegrates and darkness is isolation. The tremendous disintegration in the soul, tremendous isolation in the soul. The English word hell in the Greek is Gehenna. And Gehenna in the Greek, follow me, is actually just the Greek spelling of an Aramaic place called the Valley of Hinnom. It's a place. It's the southwestern corner of, of, uh, of Jerusalem, or southwest of Jerusalem. And in the ancient world, thousands of years before Jesus showed up, it's where people who worshipped the god of Moloch, 
a Canaanite god, sacrificed children. It's disgusting, and it's abhorrent, and everybody knew that's what happened there in Gehenna. And so by the time Jesus comes on the scene, it's a garbage dump. And so everybody knew that there was the garbage dump, which used to be the place where children were sacrificed, and everything about it is abhorrent. And there's the worms in the garbage dump, and they would burn the, they would burn the garbage, and, and there's, so there's the fire, images of fire. So Jesus takes this image that everybody is familiar with, the southwest of Jerusalem, and he says, that is what the condition of the soul is like when you reject God, and then he, in the end, removes his presence. It's like Gehenna. It's like hell. And so he uses that imagery to get us to think about this eternal ruin. It's terrifying, and it's, and it's tragic, but why does he do it? Well, as you continue to see the way that Jesus talks about hell, he subverts the way that as moderns we think about it. If, if you were to go on the street today and just ask ten random people, you know, what's hell and how do you get there, they're going to say something like, do a bunch of good things to go to heaven, do the wrong things to go to hell, and that's kind of the basis of it, and that's going to be the conversation, and, and inevitably it's this idea that God's like sending people there. But when Jesus talks about it, he gives us a parable. And the parable about hell, um, he doesn't take any time to describe hell. He actually talks about the people, the, the person who's there. And you can find it in Luke 16. And I'm just going to paraphrase it. Otherwise, it would be sermon inception. And I'd be like deep diving down this other road. But a parable is a fictional story to convey something that is true. So again, Jesus is talking about hell, which is a reality. I know that there's, it's popular today in some some. Christian circles to say, no, 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 it's not a reality. It's uh, metaphorical. No, it's not metaphorical. But Jesus is using metaphors. And so in Luke 16, he uses a parable. And he says that there is a beggar, uh, and his name is Lazarus. And he's laid at the door of a rich man. And we're not given the rich man's name. But the phrase laid at the door means, for that original audience, this guy's crippled. And the rich guy dies. And uh, and Lazarus uh, uh, dies, and, and uh, in the parable, the rich guy sees Lazarus at the side of Abraham, which is a way of saying he's in the presence of God. And what's interesting is there's no remorse, there's no repentance, there's no sadness, there's no I was wrong, I was, there's, none of that is there. This rich guy is relating to Lazarus like he's still the rich guy. He's so turned in and myopic, he says to Abraham in the parable, tell Lazarus to go and dip his hand in some water and cool, the tongue, cool my tongue because of this fire. In other words, this, the guy's crippled. Jesus already established that. And he wants to send the cripple like an Aaron boy. So he's just curved in, curved in, curved in. After that, after that the parable continues and he says to Abraham, Abraham says, no, we're not, we're not, uh, we're not doing that. You had your time. And... and uh, the rich man says to Abraham, well, send him to go talk to my... So do you see how even in, even in hell, the parable of hell, this rich man is just thoroughly, uh, thoroughly still curved in. Send the cripple here. Send the cripple there. Send him to my brothers. They, oh, I didn't have enough information. Well, they have the scriptures. They've got the prophets. They have everything. And, and he says, oh, uh, no, no, no. But if you send somebody who's been raised from the dead, then they'll believe. And Jesus says, no, even if somebody's raised from the dead and they see someone who's raised from the dead, they're not going to believe. See, that parable about hell is not to teach us details about hell, it, but it gives us a window into the kind of person, the rich man, who's in hell. Notice that the rich man has no name. Right? He has no identity because his identity is his riches or his wealth. 
And the riches and wealth could be anything. It's like Lazarus, I know, I know him by name. The rich man, I don't know who that is. Because his whole identity in life is wrapped up in this other thing. And even in hell, he's still acting like he's the rich guy. So when Jesus talks about it, he doesn't talk about it like, oh, you, you made a couple wrong turns and you ended up in hell. He's describing it like your soul is on a trajectory where you have no desire for God. You don't want him all of your days. And that just carries on into the next age to come. And the important thing about all of this for us as the church, we're like, well, what are we really supposed to do with all this? Is that we're not supposed to think about this in terms of walking around life and deciding who's in and who's out or any of these sorts of things. We don't use hell like some sort of weird religious weapon. It's not our right. It's not our prerogative. It's not our responsibility to make any of these judgments. God is just and he's merciful. He's more just than you and I are. He's more merciful than you and I are. He's more gracious than you and I are. And he's more patient than you and I are. God, from the beginning of time, has been drawing people to saving grace that you and I would never save. This is who he is. God of perfect justice and perfect mercy. And when Jesus comes on the scene and he starts preaching the good news, again, it's very different than if you talk to 10 people on the street and say, what's the story of Christianity? They'd be like, well, here I am, I'm living my life. And if I, do, you know, if I do enough good things, I go to heaven. If I do bad things, I go to hell. And it's a very me-centered idea. Right? I'm living my life. I'm the, I'm the center of the narrative. And God exists to either make my life better while we're here or whatever. In the end, have a good trajectory. But when Jesus comes, Jesus says in the beginning of Mark's gospel, and those of you who studied Mark's gospel last year will remember this, that he comes and he says, uh, the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. What good news? He hasn't gone to the cross yet. There's not any substitutionary atonement. There's no Christus Victor. There's no union with Christ. There's no indwelling with the Holy Spirit. None of that's happened yet. So what's this good news? The good news is God coming here. See, our whole view of Christian faith is quite often I'm at the center of it. I'm living my life and I'm the main actor and God's this, 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 sub, you know, this uh, supporting character to my life. But the biblical narrative is, good Jesus, believe the good, the good news. I'm here. In other words, what God created at the beginning is going to restore in the end. God's narrative is that he created a beautiful creation of beloved people. And we've been wayward from the jump because we rejected him. Story of Genesis. And so God is renewing that. He's on a process of renewing that. And and it's about God coming here. As I endlessly say at Redeemer that when we think about where where the trajectory of human history is going, we're not leaving to go to some spiritual place. It's the renewal of the material. Heaven is the convergence of the realms, the realm of God in this beautiful material world that he will restore. Remove all the incongruencies and the sorrows and sadness and wipe every tear from every eye. That's where it's going, but it's the convergence of what he began in the beginning. Genesis is like a temple, the realm of God and the realm of man in beautiful unity. Here we live in the already and not yet of things being quite sideways and broken. The world of ours is beautiful, but undeniably sideways, sad, sorrowful. But in the end, God will renew and restore all things. And the restoration and the rest and the deliverance and the peace and the, the reality of the realization of what your souls are longing for is found in God bringing his just judgment and deliverance from all of the things that are breaking and destroying God's good world. You know, last Sunday, Michael Anderson was preaching on the Sabbath. And between now and then, we just continually and repeatedly 
are called to enter into this Sabbath rest, this idea of the trust and the, uh, the enjoyment and the joy of God. And Paul is wanting the Thessalonians to enter into a sense of Sabbath rest, a sense of trust and joy and enjoyment in God in the midst of crushing oppression where they're being hunted. And he's saying, guys, judgment is coming. In the end, nobody's getting away with anything. And that's actually good news. And turn and trust in God. So what has Jesus done about it? What has he done about it? What kind of a judge is this? He's a justifier. He's the one that says, I'm not just going to leave you. I'm going to come toward you. Jesus took our judgment day. This is what the cross is. It, hell is. Hell is the eternal ruin of the soul by being by being abandoned by God. That's what happened at the cross. Jesus cries out and there's no response. God abandons him. He is abandoned so we can be adopted. He is forsaken so we can be forgiven. Jesus is cast out so we can be brought in. This is the glory of the cross. This is the this is the picture of his of his the substitution of his sacrifice. That God's intention is to heal his beautiful world. And Jesus hates hell more than, than we do. Some of us in here, every time I even talk about it, you're still squirming. Like, man, this is the worst. Even I just hearing it is uncomfortable. Jesus hates it more than we do. You know, when, he, when, when Jesus went to raise Lazarus from the grave, before he says, Lazarus, come forth, there's a verse that's very famous in the Bible, and it says, Jesus wept. And the more literal translation of the Greek is, Jesus snorted. Because it's heaving. It's ugly crying. It's God broken and distraught over his good creation that is ruined. The bodies that break down in sickness and disease and death. The myriad of ways in which the world is broken. Jesus is heaving over it. He hates hell more than we do. Our forms of justice are just dealing with the symptoms. Let's end injustice, end racism, end... uh, and poverty and sex trafficking, all of these ab- abhorrent, horrific things that we want the end to, and we can all agree that we want those things to come to an end. Jesus cares about it more deeply than that. His judgment is more deep than that. That's the Sermon on the Mount. No, 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 no. It's not just the sex trafficking. It's not just the ab- abhorrent and disgusting using a person for your own personal gratification. Underneath that, it's the lust. I want to eradicate all the lust in the world. All the lust, not just sexual lust, but the overemphasis, the, the curved in nature that would cause me to be so consumed with my own desires that I would do something for my benefit and your expense. I want to eradicate all of that in every form from the world. No, no, no. It's not just murder. It's anger. Do you see how Jesus cares about justice more than we care about it? And his judgment is more perfect and pure than ours ever will be because we're just going to be snapping off the problems that keep revisiting themselves every five <laughs> Every five minutes in humanity. One of, the, you know, one of the staggering advancements of humanity is technology and science. It's, it's wondrous, the advancements that are made. But like I said the last time I preached, there is no advancement in the human soul. All of the horrors that were present in the ancient world can be found today. We just keep reinventing ways of hurting each other. This endless catalog of sorrow. And God wants to eradicate that. He cares about hell, he cares about hell more than we care about it. He hates it more than we hate it. It's ruined his beautiful and good world. And he's going to bring renewal to it. He will absolutely do this. 
And so the raging hellfires that are destroying the world, they're ignited by these small and seemingly insignificant wayward desires. This is why God is a God of mercy, because we can't just look at the, the low-hanging fruit of war and racism and say, Oh yeah, those guys deserve hell. We don't want God either. And we want to be God as well in our own ways. We have contributed to the sorrows of the world. Sin is not a conversation about it revisiting somebody's life like intensely. Sin is a conversation about humanity being tainted extensively. So if you're visiting, if you're new to Christian faith, it's not like, oh, well, you know, sin is about being a disgusting person and holiness is about being a morally upright person. That's a too simplistic a way to think about it because, of course, if we love Jesus, we will emulate him, live in holiness and desire that, forsake our sin and live to the obedience of our Savior. And so I'm not preaching lawlessness this morning, which would be weird. So, of course, we want to be people of morality. But Christianity is not a morality game. It's about belief and desiring God. Or rejecting him. And that rejection carrying on for forever. And Jesus calls that hell. The, the curved inward nature of not wanting God. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the cross. It's God's way of destroying the eroding effects of sin. Without having to destroy us. He turns it all on himself. How does the great judge come? He comes as a justifier. How does the great physician heal? He lives a hell free life. He lives a life of perfect love and And justice, this perfect humanity, this picture of who all of us are created to be, and yet we fail to be. And then in the end, he allows the hell that we created to overwhelm him. The very first verse of the Bible, what does it say? Many of you have it memorized. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But some of us have lived our whole Christian lives. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and hell. When the sun goes out, you're left with utter coldness and death. And when God removes his presence, you're left with hell. God is not a vindictive ogre like Zeus throwing lightning bolts and goes, I'm going I'm to create a good place and I'm going to create a bad place. That's paganism. That's the philosophy of the afterworld of the Greeks and Romans. I'm going to create a good place. I'm going to create a bad place. I'm going to send the good people there. I'm going to send the bad people there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the realm of this glorious creation and God's presence in it. And the rejection of him in the end is to be removed from the renewal of all things. It is the rejection of God that creates hell. Is it Lucifer and the angels, the rejection of God, wanting to rise up to God, they are cast from his presence. This is hell. For us to just perpetually and un- unendingly sort of reject him. So in the end, Jesus allows all of our rejection to fall on him at the cross. And he and, and allows the judgment of God to be exhausted on him for our benefit. So how do we respond to all this as I close? We enter into rest. We enter into God's rest. We, we turn to him. We trust him. There is this trust transfer. There is this resting. For those of you who are believers this morning and your faith is in Jesus Christ and you've been baptized into his name... We enter into the rest. We enter into the humility of knowing that final judgment is coming and therefore we don't relate to our neighbors and our people in our workplaces with a sense of self-righteousness. We're not any better than anybody. We're forgiving. So we see ourselves as ministers, loving and caring with kindness, moving toward them, giving a defense for the hope that we believe. See ourselves as ministers of the gospel. We enter into this rest. To borrow from... uh, 
C.S. Lewis. He says that in the end, the answer to those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What is it that we want God to do? If we hate this idea of hell so much, what do we want God to do about this? Do we want him to wipe out our past sins at all costs? Do we want him to give us a fresh start? He did that on the cross. Do we want him to forgive us? Well, if we, we, if we reject him, we don't want his forgiveness. Do we want to be left alone? We hate this God. We want nothing to do with him. We're disgusted by him. We laugh at him. We scoff at him. We want to be left alone by him. In the end, that's what hell is. Being left alone by him. In the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And to those who God inevitably says, thy will be done. In the end, we enter into this rest. The apostle ends in verse 12 saying that he wants the name of Jesus to be glorified in us. That we enter into the rest, that we, we know that because God is the judge, it forges resilience and patience in us in hard times and in sorrowful times. It, it, the, this peace liberates us from needing to be the judge. We are able to marvel at him. We are able to marvel at the renewal that is coming, the, the deliverance that is coming, the rest that is coming. And it infuses our Monday with the resilience to move forward, the sense of peace and a sense of calm and a sense of trust that our very lives are in his hand. That in the end, all of the expectations and desires of the human soul will be satisfied. The renewal of the body, the renewal of the mind, the renewal of God's good world. Removing all of the incongruencies that come with the brokenness of sin in our bodies, in our mental health, in the earth, in culture, in the city. In the end, it's the restating of the cultural mandate of Genesis to be fruitful, to cultivate civilization in a way that's congruent with the nature of God. We begin to live into all of that now. We marvel now. We worship now. We rest now. The scriptures end with a new beginning. So may we live to the glory of the one who has saved us in grace. May we trust him in his perfect judgment. And we rest in his glorious deliverance. In his glorious rest. May we live to the glory of the one who saved us in grace. Let's pray.